For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and happy 2018, everybody. This is Evan, your long-form podcast co-host. Max, Aaron, and myself are off this week. So we're sending you an episode from the archives. This is Ben Taub from 2016. Ben is a staff writer at the New Yorker magazine. He's done a lot of international reporting. You'll hear him talk about ISIS. You'll hear him talk about his incredibly wrenching story around doctors in Syria. Since this episode has come out, he's also done big stories, including one on the humanitarian crisis in Chad and another about human trafficking. I recommend you check both of those out. This is one of my favorite interviews that I've ever conducted for the podcast, both because Ben has a really fascinating and fun and self-starting way that he got into journalism and because he's also extremely thoughtful about how he approaches his work. I hope you'll enjoy it if you haven't heard it already. If you have, I hope you enjoy revisiting it. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Okay, Ben. Ben Taub, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming in here. Uh, it's funny that we're having you on now, actually, because uh, we had uh, Mr. David Remnick on just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he did not name check that many writers in the course of the podcast, but you were one of them. And he brought up your name as an example of like being on the lookout for and identifying talented writers and diligent reporters and how he uh, has to sort of always be open to people who might be someone who could write for The New Yorker, you know, someone who could produce something great. And so that leads me to want to know how you got to the point where you got identified in that way by someone who then pointed you out to David Remnick. So oh. <laughs> I think it would be really interesting to know because you have, you're at the early part of your career, how this career kind of like got going to begin with. Um, well, in 2011, during the Arab Spring, I made a very rash decision that I don't regret at all, um, uh, which was I I was a sophomore in college and I had met this girl who was a few years older who was moving to Cairo for the summer to work for a refugee rights organization. And her plans had, you know, ossified long before the Arab Spring, but she was going to go irrespective of what was happening. So this was right after the Arab Spring. This would be the summer after the Arab Spring. Exactly. And she, uh, her workplace was uh, two blocks from Tahrir Square. And her apartment that she was renting was half a block from the Ministry of Interior, you know, right around the corner. And so it was a, an area of some excitement. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Egypt, uh, and I didn't tell my university, and I didn't tell my family because um, I was n nervous about making them nervous. You know, Egypt was on the front page of the Times every day with, you know, quite scary pictures. And I had never been outside of the U.S. or Western Europe. Huh. And I wanted—I I sort of primarily went to see her, but I also wanted to see what was going on. 
And I conflated the excitement of being in love with someone for the first time with the excitement of the Arab Spring and couldn't really parse those two experiences. And, you know, the, of course, the relationship sort of fell, fizzled out over the ensuing months. But I, I retained this fascination with what was going on in Egypt. And so when I came back to school, um, I came back and decided to enroll in a journalism class. And you were at Princeton? Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, they have a small journalism program where basically every semester they bring in um, four or five reporters or editors from uh, who basically take a semester of leave from their from their various jobs. And this semester they had Deborah Amos from NPR come in, and she covers the Middle East for, mm-hmm. uh, for NPR. And so I enrolled in her class, and I enrolled in an investigative reporting class with Joe Stevens from The Post, just trying to sort of find what... I was interested in. Did you have any? Do you have any journalists in your family or in your no. in your background? Um, I'm not a- aware of any. Yeah. No, um, my dad's a pianist, <laughs> and I had spent most of college to this point thinking that I would want to become a musician or an actor, and also studying philosophy and thinking maybe that I would want to go to grad school for that. I was really captivated by moral philosophy, and so I took Deb Amos's class and sort of never looked back after that. She was someone who. After each lesson, I just wanted to live some approximation of her life. (laughs) And she was a really kind mentor. Uh, And so I took a year off school after that and um, ultimately traveled to the Middle East. And she guided me a lot of the way. When you went to the Turkish-Syrian border for the first time, what was your sort of, in your mind, your stated aim? So essentially, the plan was to try to learn about the war, but also to learn about how people report it. And so the idea was that I would live in this border town for, it was called Killis. Mm-hmm. And so Killis is a very, very small town. There were two hotels very close to each other that were just, you know, absolutely dreadful places. Um, I, my room cost about $12 a night. Um, and it's about three kilometers north of Syria. And it's at a major crossing point for Aleppo. So all the jihadis, all the weapons that are shoveled across the Turkish-Syrian border basically go through Kilis Crossing or through Bab al-Hawa, which is uh, a few miles to the west. And I thought that I would just sort of hang out and meet people there, meet a, a lot of the time the, the intention was to meet journalists who are who are covering the war and who are going into Aleppo and sit down with them over beers and talk about their security precautions, how they plan trips, what they look for when they're on the ground, how they work so that they don't endanger fixers or other locals that they encounter, and whether after a decade or 15 years of covering conflict, they feel as though it's taken a toll on them that is or isn't worth it. Um, And so it's really, more than anything, trying to figure out whether this is something that I was cut out for, Hmm. And or whether it was something that I even wanted to do. And what I was really captivated by was meeting a lot of people who I felt shouldn't have been there. Um, kind of in a way that I shouldn't have been there. Mm-hmm. But they were less aware of that of the fact that they shouldn't have been you there. You wrote about some of these people in the, for yeah. the Daily Beast, right? Yeah, there were a lot of people who were going into Syria for really dark reasons that they had difficulty explaining. Yeah. Um, People that just kind of wanted to see violence, uh, sometimes participate in it for no real reason, no ideological reason. You know, not not necessarily fighters, but just kind of war tourists. And I don't know. 
there were a lot of really dark things going on in this town. And then later you wrote about meeting Stephen Sotloff and, mm-hmm. you know, what happened to him. And was that yeah. that summer that you Yeah, it was that him? summer. So between March and June of 2013, um, ISIS started its trend of kidnapping. They yeah. kidnapped about half a dozen guys, like, in May and June alone. And so I had resolved that I wasn't going to cross. Um, I was just going to stay and try to understand this town. And... You know, there was a handful of Syrian guys who were who were bringing journalists in. They all knew each other. They all knew who each other were. Some of them trusted each other a little bit. Some of them purported to be friends. By the time Stephen Sotloff came to town, I had been there for six weeks, and I had seen a lot of really close calls with abduction. Mm-hmm. Um, there was there was a Canadian who was targeted for abduction and who left sort of just in time after me and one other person intervened. This I, was the photographer. Yeah, having having found out that he had been targeted with certainty, um, we got a note from someone in Aleppo saying, yeah, they know where his hotel room, they know his hotel room number, they know he's meeting this fixer tomorrow at 10 a.m. You know, with armed with that information, he finally agreed to go home and he left. But, um, and, and I, I sat down with Stephen over beers and we talked about all these things that had happened and, and all the crazy people that were going in. And there was a Japanese war tourist who was running around sort of, half taking pictures, half shooting guns for fun. Like, we talked about all these stuff and kind of laughed them off and said, isn't it all terrible and dark and isn't it all sad? Because ultimately, I mean, this is all done at the expense of Syrian civilians. um, And it's particularly jarring to watch how little a lot of people noticed that Mm. uh, or considered that when they were planning their trips. And Stephen told me his war stories from Yemen and from from Egypt and from Libya and his prior complications with his travel into Syria. And I was very surprised when three days later someone came out of Aleppo and asked me if I had heard about this fixer that was missing. And that was the same fixer that the Canadian had uh, sought out. It was the same fixer that Sotloff and I had discussed and I told him not to go with because... He was being followed from the Canadians, sort of blunders. It was the same, yeah, same reason you the Canadian had been warned off. Yeah. was that this fixer was potentially yeah the fixer was compromised. W- yeah, the, the fixer himself was not at all thought to be involved in selling anyone out, but he was likely being followed. Um, and so I was very surprised when the fixer was missing. I wrote to Stephen on Facebook, and I was like, "Hey, man, you know, Yusuf's disappeared. His wife's looking for him. Let me know if you hear anything." And I hope to grab beers when you get out of Aleppo soon. And the message showed up red, and he didn't reply. Um, But I figured, internet's bad, he's very busy, he's got other things to worry about. And the following day, I found out that they had been kidnapped together. And my heart sank. I I, I just had this feeling of utter terror and emptiness. and confusion and fear because I had another friend who was still in Aleppo who had to get out and she was planning to come out in two or three days. So I could, I felt as though I couldn't leave, even though I felt as though I should leave. Um, that you might be targeted at this point because of a connection. It didn't occur to me for a, until about three in the morning that night when I finally was so exhausted that I had to go to sleep. And I lay down in my bed, you know, about to close my eyes. And I realized that the message I had sent him had been read. 
and that three messages earlier, we ex exchanged hotel room numbers. And so I had written to whoever was reading Sotlov's messages that I was in room 507 at the Hotel Istanbul in Killis. And I was just terrified. Um, and I went to bed that night thinking that there was a pretty reasonable chance that I would get abducted in the middle of the night. Um, this was not a hotel in the traditional sense. It was, you know, there there were guys hanging out in the lobby all day, sort of texting. And, and one of the widespread, not just rumors, but likelihoods, was that journalists were being monitored and kill us, and aid workers were being monitored and kill us, so that when they crossed the border... Uh, which is about a 30-minute process of walking through three big Turkish checkpoints, and then, you know, there's one road that you take to get to Aleppo. Um, someone can phone ahead saying, okay, he's coming, he looks like this, he's carrying a brown bag, and he'll be there in 40 minutes. And then people would get picked up very quickly upon crossing the border. But if you get into a car on the Turkish side, someone can get you into Syria pretty easily against your will mm -hmm. through the various smuggling points. And I woke up the next day, um, and fortunately my friend who was stuck in Aleppo managed to make it out. She she barely did. Um, she had to go through an ISIS checkpoint uh, wearing a niqab and, and pretending to be her fixer's wife. Mm. And her fixer was driving with both windows down at this checkpoint with a grenade uh, next to the handbrake so that they could toss it out of either window if they had to and just floor it. Um, but they didn't have to. They got through, and um, we, she and I spent the next four or five days hanging out in Killis trying to sort of pin down what had happened to Sotloff. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, um, this culminated with a, a meeting that I arranged um, at a point where I had totally lost perspective. Um, I felt as though I just couldn't leave without doing everything possible to find out what had happened. And that entailed arranging a tea with a British guy who I strongly suspected was a member of ISIS, mm -hmm. who I'd met in a taxi about a month before, who purported to be a field doctor, but he was working in a town called Azaz that was totally under the control of the Islamic State, that a lot of foreign jihadis traveled into. It was directly off opposite Killis. And to my mind, then and today, be completely impossible for a British doctor to have worked in Azaz at that time without being affiliated. And that was also a place where a lot of people had been kidnapped. And so I figured that he would, he might know something. Mm -hmm. And so we arranged to meet up on the Turkish side on my terms at a cafe at 6 p.m. when the sun was still out. And this was a, an outdoor area next to a busy road where there were often Turkish military uh, personnel and vehicles. The likelihood of open abduction was pretty much nil. Mm -hmm. You know, you could get killed in a suicide bombing, but you couldn't really get abducted without someone noticing. And they wouldn't be able to get far because there was too much traffic. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it seemed like a pretty good place to do what I felt I had to do. Which was try to find out what this guy might know about Dimitrov's abduction. What might he know, abduction. and could he arrange a line of communication? Because at this point, a lot of people had been abducted, but ISIS hadn't yet made any demands. Right, this is before the videos. A, a year before the videos. Yeah. 
a year before really anyone knew about this because a lot of journalists agreed to sort of keep a media blackout with an idea that uh, well, families were certainly trying to negotiate and, and figure out what had happened and do anything they could to release governments with mixed commitments, perhaps. And so everyone sort of kept this media blackout, even though we all knew, too, that it seemed to be contributing to abductions because a lot of people were going in without knowing that there had been trends of abductions in the same towns that they were about to visit. Mm. So uh, this was a dilemma. Um, so let's uh, we'll step back for one second. I mean... I just want to keep in mind for people who are listening to this. Uh, this is like what you're doing instead of being in college or like right you're between your yeah, junior between senior year. Between senior years. And so you're you're now wrapped up in this, okay, I'm going to try to help figure out maybe if I can what happened. But how are you conceiving your role at this point? Are you thinking like I'm going to do this and I'm going to go home and I'm never going to come back? Like this sounds like it has the potential where you could say – I made a big mistake coming here. This is insane. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah. The town and spiraled into a complete black hole. And I think so did my own grasp of what was possible, what I should be doing, whether or not I really had to be there. But I felt morally obliged. Like, I just, I couldn't leave. I would never have forgiven myself for not trying. And... um I don't know. Maybe I, that might sound really stupid. And I think today I would have had the wherewithal and the state of mind to know that it was not my re- responsibility and that I might have, if anything, maybe it's morally worse to put myself in a position where I might harm my family and people that are close to me by putting myself in, in a situation that I shouldn't have and that I, it wasn't my role to fill. But at the time, I had just gone down the dark hole with this town and I I really felt as though this was something to, I had to do. And so we arranged this meeting with the, the British guy um, and he didn't show up. And I had already packed my bags in case the meeting went badly and I was ready to leave anyway. And I was planning to leave that night anyway when he called again and he said... He called me and he said, okay, like, we just had some difficulty crossing the border. I'm with a bunch of guys who they've never met an American. They're excited to see you. Um, you know, we're going to come take you for dinner. Uh, we'll grab you, pick you up, take you to our place, uh, Turkish side or Syrian side. doesn't matter, but um, come with us. And I was like, no, no, no. You can come to the cafe as you were supposed to, but I'm not, I'm not coming with you anywhere. Ultimately, he agreed to come to the cafe, but I didn't like that he was with other people because he wasn't supposed to be with other people. When he got there, I, I was deliberating with the other person whether or not we should go. And he called again. He said, we're at the cafe. Uh, we're parked outside. We're in the van next to the cell phone shop. Um, come get in the van. And I said, no, you get out of the van and we'll meet you at the cafe. And he said, no, 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 get in the van. And we had this back and forth for two or three minutes. And then he started shouting at me. Um, accusing me of, you know, racism and Islamophobia for refusing to trust him. And I hung up and they sped off uh, with two vans. And I had this, the feeling that I had narrowly avoided an abduction. Um, and I, so that night I left. I went to Gaziantep an hour north and I basically hid in a hotel room up there 
you know, in, in a spell of darkness. And um, and then I had a Turkish friend who lived in a, a place in a, a beautiful part of the country on the Aegean Sea, and I spent three days with her there um, just sort of recovering, unable to grasp what had happened. Uh, and then I had a very jarring uh, return to Princeton two weeks later, <laughs> where I was a peer I academic advisor to several freshmen who had legitimate concerns about like majors and classes and like roommates who suck. Um, but I had a hard time filling that role. Um, and also, of course, I couldn't talk about what had happened because there was this this media blackout. And so it was really hard. And, and my head and my heart were still stuck on the Turkish-Syrian border as I tried to reintegrate into school. So then, yeah. wh- where where do you where do you go from there? Does that did, do you feel like you say you're still caught up in yeah. in thinking about it? But did you think, okay, now I'm going to consider what my journalistic options could be? At that point, I just couldn't stop looking at Syria, and it wasn't really. It was partially about the abductions, trying to figure out what had happened there, knowing with no intention of writing about them because I there was this media blackout, and I didn't I didn't want to write about them really. I just wanted to understand what had happened. And so I started really studying ISIS pretty closely and following it very closely. But also, I, I had met a lot of Syrian refugees, a lot of Syrian... I, you know, I've talked about fixers who were untrustworthy, but I met a lot of Syrian fixers who were really lovely, trustworthy people who had had their lives totally upended by this conflict, whose brothers and sisters had been killed uh, or kidnapped by security services of the Syrian government. I just couldn't stop looking at Syria. So it was less about wanting to be a journalist than it was being completely unable to extricate myself from this situation. And I ended up going back to Killis the following summer. After I graduated, I went straight back to Killis. I spent another two months there. It was a totally different town. ISIS had been sort of routed out of the area by mm-hmm. the moderate rebels. And so I, I was there working on a very specific project that was intended to be a a piece of long-form journalism that ultimately I haven't yet written, but I think I'm probably going to. <laughs> uh, it was sort of an investigation into a very interesting con man who I became quite close to before I knew he was a con man. And I returned to Killis to look into one of his uh, stated projects a lot more closely. And and um, I haven't decided whether or not I'll do anything on that. And what did your, what was the feeling among your, you know, your family and your friends at this point about what you were doing? How did you explain it to people and what, what did they, what did they think? I told my family everything about that period in real time. Um, as the abduction stuff was going on, I checked in with them. I checked in with my two journalism professors, Deb Amos and Joe Stevens. I checked in with my philosophy professor. I told a few friends when I returned what had happened, but I couldn't, I still, I, I mean, it was it was hard because I didn't know that many people going back to Princeton. Like a lot of my friends had graduated. Um, and so I was trying to make new friends and that entailed going to, <laughs> parties at these eating clubs which are in themselves like morally questionable institutions and and like the dissonance between <laughs> these things have also been quite extraordinary it was jarring it was very jarring but i you know i had spent the previous 3 years at this school 
and I knew how things worked there, and I had been as much a part of of that system as all of the students who now couldn't relate to what had happened to me on the Turkish-Syrian border. And so I didn't harbor any resentment for people for not understanding. I mostly was just grateful to the few people that I felt like I could really confide in um, for being there. Uh, and then at what point along the way did you say, I am also going to try out for a reality TV show? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that was... Uh, this is a bit of a chronological mess. So yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't need to keep the strict chronology. We just have to hit the, hit the highlights. But I'm, I'm going to say you're both the first person in over 200 episodes to say that their journalism career was commenced on the basis of a love, and then I believe the second part may also be a first. Right. So, um, so while I was taking my first journalism class in the spring of 2012 in Deb Amos's class. I I had spent the preceding couple of years, um, my primary extracurricular focus was learning how to sing, and secondary one was like stage acting, um, both of which I cared about a lot, and both of which I frankly miss immensely now that I am really not doing them. Um, You've got time. <laughs> we'll see. Um, but uh, so in 2012, I one of my favorite singers was CeeLo Green. And I just admired him because he was a complete weirdo and because there was this obscure video of him singing the most complicated sequence of notes that I've heard anybody sing to back then and to date. Um, it was honestly, it was the only sequence of notes that were so confusing that I just, like, couldn't get it every time I wanted to. And I admired him so much. And I just loved his voice, and I loved that he was a total psycho. Um, and so uh, when I found out that the voice was holding auditions, I just wanted to meet CeeLo. And so I went to the New York auditions, and it was during midterm exams, and I got there, and there was this huge line. And I went up to check in with the person at the front desk. Um, and uh, I was like, my appointment time was for 7. It looks like there's a huge line. 7 o'clock is in 10 minutes. Like, realistically, when am I going to go? And she was like, our line's about an hour and a half. And I said, look, I have midterms. Like, I'm going back to school. And she was like, don't tell anybody. And she just put my card on top. And so I went next. <laughs> and so I went in and, and sang for, not for, I mean, this was a very preliminary stage. This was not for CeeLo or They have some else. lower level judges yeah, that yeah. Uh, uh, producers sort and, out people. Exactly. Uh -huh. And so I sang two or three songs for them. Um, and a few weeks later, I got a call saying, come out to LA. <laughs> and so, yeah, so, I don't know. It, I ended up being a contestant on the show on CeeLo's team for a couple of episodes. I They aired almost none of my interviews because, um, well, for various reasons. One, I mean, I could never know the real reasons. Um, among them might be, were I to guess, that they kept asking me to sort of talk about Egypt and how I wanted to be a war journalist. Uh -huh. and I, was, I kept saying... Uh, 
I'm not going to say war journalist on television. I want to be maybe a foreign correspondent. I'm interested in journalism. I'm learning about it right now, but I'm not going to say I want to be a war journalist. That's despicable. And I think I gave these really boring, rambling interviews where pretty much everything was unusable. Um, and so I think I got a grand total of like 12 seconds of airtime <laughs> between like two or three episodes. Uh, I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. But like this, it wasn't me and I was doing it kind of for fun, kind of for curiosity. Yeah. Um, so I went after the show, I went down to Atlanta where I uh, met up with a former professor who worked in a rap studio. Um, so I spent about six weeks sort of sleeping on the floor um, in the spare room uh, there and working on making original music. Not, I wasn't working on rap stuff. I was working on jazz and R&B original co- compositions with my former professor who, you know, I think those recordings, we made seven or eight songs. Probably two or three of them are are decent, but... Uh, only exist on our drop boxes right uh-huh. now. Um, and I just haven't returned to them. Um, but I, I kind of pivoted after the new year into the the trip that became the path to the Turkish-Syrian border. And I used, for, the, for that initial trip, I, I had saved up a bit of money from The Voice where I didn't win anything, um, but they pay a stipend. And because I didn't really have that many expenses in life, I was living at home, um, I had saved up like two or three thousand dollars, which traveling t- from Tunisia to Belarus and mostly traveling by bus and mostly sleeping either on buses or couch surfing or staying with friends, like that worked that got for, you there. for two or three months. Yeah. yeah. Our show is brought to you today by Tripping.com. Did you know that the average family visits five websites before booking a vacation rental? I think that actually uh, sounds low. Don't waste all your time planning your next trip. Have that fun relaxing with Tripping.com, the world's number one site for vacation rentals. I love vacation rentals. They offer flexibility, perks, amenities that hotels don't, multiple bedrooms, backyards, hot tubs, free Wi-Fi, even fully stocked kitchens, great for families, big groups. So whether you're looking for a cabin for New Year's Eve, actually that already passed, so uh, you missed it if that was the truth. But uh, next year, uh, maybe a vacation to Hawaii or staying in Europe like a local, Tripping.com can help you find the perfect place to stay. One search lets you filter, compare, and sort over 10 million available properties on trusted sites like VRBO, TripAdvisor, Booking.com. You don't have to wonder if you're getting the best deal. You'll save an average of 18% per night by booking with Tripping.com. So go to Tripping.com slash longform. You're going to save money and book the perfect vacation rental. Again, T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G dot com slash longform. Thank you, Tripping.com. So then let's fast forward to how these stories came about. Um, because so now you've had this like up close exposure to journalism as it, at its extreme and actually like weirdly Hollywood as at its extreme. <laughs> at its and, ugliest. Like, yeah. Both of them, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And you've 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 chosen one. Yeah. And 
you're invested in this one area. But then the next question is sort of like, how do you start a career around that? And so how did these stories come about? The first story about the teenage... The Belgians. Yeah. The... So um, during the summer of 2014, when I was back in Killis, I... Because by this point, everyone knew about the abductions and ISIS had taken Mosul. Although, to be fair, the public didn't really know about the abductions yet. A handful of families had gone public. The beheading tapes hadn't been released yet. Um, but no journalists were coming to kill us. Like, no one was going to Aleppo because it was too dangerous. There was no reason to go to kill us if you're not going to Aleppo. So no one came. And I was hanging out there for a while. And one day, I was walking down the only busy street in town and I spotted these two middle-aged white guys with backpacks who were clearly out of place and so I went up to them and I thought maybe this was sort of a remnant of the previous summer of two people that shouldn't be there <laughs> um, like tour war tours yeah I didn't know or maybe they were very competent journalists who were just you know had the contacts and the logistical expertise to go to Aleppo and do it right um, I didn't know so I went up to them and I just asked them, I was like, what are you doing here? How do, how do you, um, at this point, do you introduce yourself? I'm Ben Taub, I'm a reporter. No, no, uh, I, I just said, um, I said I was an aspiring journalist. I was, um, you know, because on the off chance they were real journalists, I'm not going to want them to call my bluff. <laughs> I was like, look, I'm an aspiring journalist. I'm living here, like, I've seen almost no one that's not Syrian or Turkish in this town, what are you doing? And they said they're they're from Belgium. They were fathers of young ISIS recruits, and they were traveling. They were planning to go to Raqqa to try to ne negotiate with one of their sons to come home. And this was the strangest thing I had ever seen in Killis. But I was, to be honest, I was really distrustful of one of them in particular because he seemed very volatile. He was spouting all these conspiracy theories about the formation of ISIS, um, you know, that the U.S. and the Israeli intelligence services ha had been involved. And this is a conspiracy that's continued to circulate throughout the region since, but it was strange coming from a, a European. And But I, I took a couple of portraits of him in a, in a supermarket and of his passports that showed all these Turkish and Syrian stamps that he had clearly actually crossed because also people lied all the time and mm -hmm. didn't really know if he was telling the truth but the other father seemed more even killed and reliable and trustworthy and um i took their email addresses and i stayed in touch and then i went to grad school about three weeks after coming back from the border i went to columbia for journalism school and there's like a two programs at the journalism school. One is the main journalism program. One is um, that's the MS program. The other is the MA program, which in theory is for journalists that have a few years of experience who then want to sort of delve into a specific subject expertise and then emerge with a long form piece of writing that they can pitch around or, or take a, a sort of next step in their careers. Mm -hmm. um, I had no career. It didn't really make any sense for me to be doing that track, but I I had to do this 10,000-word project, the thesis project. And I was very fortunate to be paired with Steve Cole, who I, I think because of subject matter, um, you know, I wanted to write about ISIS or Syria or maybe uh, Europeans joining ISIS. I didn't really know. 
but we all, you know, drafted our two or three ideas, and, uh, and somehow I got matched with Steve, who is an expert on all of that and has, you know, decades of experience reporting um, investigations in the region. Yeah, and other things besides. And other things besides. Uh, he was... Um, and so I was terrified on our first meeting because <laughs> this was someone uh, who I really deeply admired. Um, and I'm always afraid of people that I admire. Um, uh, and he was so kind, and he asked me to sort of draw up a list of, of my ideas, and I gave him four or five, and one of them was, oh, I met these Belgian dads whose kids joined ISIS, and they tried to retrieve them. And he was like, do that. So I started... In Belgium, there's a very, very small community of experts who, like, monitor the jihadism problem. And by community, I mean there's, like, two guys. One of them's a journalist. One of them works in public transit but speaks Arabic and obsessively follows ISIS Twitter. And this is, keep in mind, a year before the Paris attacks. At this point, Belgium wasn't really widely thought of as the center of European terrorism. And the only reason I had picked Belgium was not some sort of prescient understanding, but just because I met these dads. And so they, they were the only contacts I had. Um, and so this public transit worker who monitors ISIS Twitter told me that there was a really interesting trial going on called the Sharia for Belgium trial, and that it, this group was responsible for dozens of young men being recruited and going into Syria and joining ISIS, all radicalized in a single apartment in Antwerp, openly, over the preceding couple of years. I, I made a few more calls, and someone who shouldn't have had access to a, a federal police investigation had this 100-page document that included wiretaps of Belgian ISIS fighters calling back to their family members and friends and bragging about committing war crimes. Um, they described in great detail the um, jihadi training program they all underwent at this base in uh, northern Syria. They talked about the emir leading their group, who ended up being largely responsible for the hostage crisis. It later emerged. Um, and the person who had this report, you came, you found them by just calling? Yeah, calling around more or less by accident and just trying to learn about jihadism in Belgium. Just asking people, what do you know about this? Yeah, who what do you who know? else should like, I talk to? Kind who, of thing? who should I talk to? Like, can you help me? And he, he had this leaked document. It had already been written about in the Belgian press. But fortunately for me, it had been written about in the Flemish press. And while a lot of people monitor the French press, this had happened in Antwerp and was really a local story. And so this incredible document and this incredible volume of information from wiretaps and from interrogations with jihadis who had returned was showing up in like the local Antwerp tabloids in Flemish and no one saw it. And so then uh, I spent uh, Thanksgiving break typing 100 pages into Google Translate because it was a, a shitty PDF <laughs> and there was no copy paste for this. And so I started learning some Flemish by typing this into Google Translate. My first word was onkloven, which means infidels. And my second word was ontufting, which means beheading. Um, and um, so I, I typed 100 pages into Google Translate and I gave it to Steve and, and he said, okay, I'm going to call up an editor at The New Yorker. And I 
became terrified again, of course. And I remember going, I got on the subway to go home, like my heart pounding, thinking of every way in which I'm going to fuck this up. And when I got off the subway and I finally got cell phone service, I had this email that said, Hi, David. Hi, Ben. I think you should meet. And I had no idea that this was going to be with David Remnick. Uh, an editor at the New Yorker. I'm gonna call. I'm gonna just contact an editor. He's over an there. editor there. He's an editor there. Um, so I went to meet him a few days later. He was incredibly kind and warm and non-judgmental of my inexperience, though healthily skeptical of it. And you know, I had a grant from Columbia to to travel to Belgium, so. The New Yorker didn't have to make it an assignment. They didn't have to front the costs. There wasn't really a risk for him to essentially give me a chance. Mm -hmm. And so he very kindly said, you know, go, stay in touch with me. Call me if you have any questions. Here's a letter of accreditation in case you need to get into the courtroom. And, you know, be very careful and um, good luck. And so I went and... I started. I just went from parent to parent, focusing on on Dmitry Bontink, who was the one I met at the Syrian border, and who became my guide to meeting other parents. Because a lot of parents, quite reasonably, were very nervous about talking to journalists about their children, were quite afraid of being totally screwed over and exploited, as as some of them had been by the, the Belgian by the local press. press. Um, do you think there was? Do you think there was an aspect of your being there, some of their children's age? Yeah, to be honest, I think that helped. Um, I was the age of some of their children. At the time, I was 23. I also, because I had lived on the border and because I had contacts in northern Syria, I was able to help some of them trace their children's roots and help them find out things about their children that their children had hidden from them. Basically, a lot of of it was spent reporting for my story, Mm -hmm. but then a lot of it was also spent just sitting down with parents and telling them I'm sorry and going through completely off the record, all the photographs and materials that they had to try to trace what had happened, just piecing it together to give them some peace of mind. Um, And how did that reporting process feel to you? I mean, you've obviously, at this point, you've done research and, you know, you've talked to a lot of people. It sounds like you're you're very good at talking to people who uh, you might approach uh, at any time, you know, on the Turkish-Syrian border or what have you. But I can imagine, I mean, there's all these tricky things about on the record, off the record, there's tricky things about what you can use and mm-hmm. and finding your ways inside an institution in a place where you don't really speak the language. Mm-hmm. Did you feel comfortable, like, this is me, like, I know what I'm doing here? Or did you feel like, I'm just trying to f- do what I can do every day? Like, what, I, how, what yeah. was your approach? I was largely guided by the absolute looming terror of facing what I had heard about from the New Yorker fact-checking department. And so I thought I need to have absolutely everything on tape. I need to, uh, I I went way too far. I mean, just because I had no idea what I was, what to walk into, and so I wanted to be really prepared. So I photographed street signs of a certain town being like, I can prove to you that I spoke to this parent who's from Kortrick because here's a photo of the local train station in Kortrick that has the metadata showing the date and the time that I was there. Um, 
It may have been too far, but I could, I'm sure the fact checkers love that. <laughs> the fact checker who was assigned to the piece became my best friend. Um, we spent a lot of time together, and he he's one of my best friends today. And and so the same went for on the record, off the record. I, I thought if any person in the fact checking process suggests that I had been deceptive or I had told them I wasn't going to use something and then I did, like, that's it. My career is totally over. I'm going to be burned forever. I'll never be able to write, not only for The New Yorker, but for anyone ever. Um, I just had this utter fear. And so I was very clear with people about what I was doing. And that's something that, I, I you know, I'm no longer quite so terrified of the process. But I still, I still am very, very, very clear with people about this is going and this isn't. Well, it's also, that, that strikes me as one of the I mean, there's a lot of amazing upsides to sort of starting at the top in terms of the quality publication that does amazing things and doing your first stories basically for it. But there's a downside, which is that people are looking for you to make a mistake and they will catch you in a mistake if you make one. Yeah, but I, I've now come to really appreciate that because um, so I, at the time that the Belgian piece got to the fact-checking process, I had spoken to more than 50 or 60 people. I had more than 100 hours of tape. I had collected several thousand pages of Belgian police documents. And I felt like a complete lunatic because the specific facts that had emerged from all this stuff were specific facts that no other person had and mm -hmm. and so that gave me this immense trepidation because i thought like what if i'm the only crazy person in the room who thinks this is true and so to have a, a very excellent fact checker his name's nicholas niarcos um go through everything and call up everyone i'd spoken to and go through the documents and determine not only that the facts were correct, but the context was correct, that the, you know, everything that goes into a story that you can get wrong. And there were a couple of things that he corrected or softened. And there were a couple of things that he was able to get that I wasn't. For instance, I knew that Yeyun, the guy profiled in the piece, I knew that he had very briefly fought on the front lines after he was released from captivity by mm -hmm. ISIS. Um, but I couldn't source that. And I couldn't get anyone to say it on the record. So it was only during the fact-checking process that Nick called up Yoon's lawyer and said, look, you know, we're pretty sure he fought. Do you dispute that? And the lawyer said, well, you know, he fired a grenade out of boredom, not out of anger. And so we use that in the <laughs> yeah, piece. It's in like, the piece. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. um, So, you know, every step along the way, the fact-checker made it better. And, and I've come to really appreciate that at the time that the piece comes out, I no longer have this terror of being completely wrong right. uh, because someone else has gone through and, and figured out that at least what's staying in there is good. Have you encountered, I mean, you're very young to be doing this type of work in particular, this like foreign correspondent type work. You're, you're also addressing one of the biggest issues today that people are really concerned about but have a difficulty like grasping and getting into. And have you encountered either uh, condescension or resentment on the part of other reporters or, or people you encounter for the fact that 
you are the age you are doing this work? My experience has been extremely positive in that I've only received encouragement from people. A lot of I've had a lot of guidance and help from really experienced reporters who have you know helped me along the way. While I was working on the ISIS stuff, um, I became close friends with Rukmini Kalamaki, who gave the best long form interview I've ever heard. <laughs> but um, actually, we, she and I were having coffee like right before she got on the subway to come that day that's how i learned oh, uh, about long form actually because oh. she was about to go um yeah, that's a great that's um, a great interview um and and i had started off as like partially a, a source when we were trying to figure out the abduction stuff um and then we became close friends and then she became a mentor and she guided me all the way she in fact for the next project that i'm plotting out right now logistics for it's in West Africa where she used to work for seven years. And so she's helping me like sort out security and logistics and stuff for that. So I've, I've only, I've been very lucky in that. Like I, I haven't experienced any resentment. I, I've only, I've been very grateful to have a lot of help and a lot of guidance from people. And um, a lot of people are doing much more serious work on a, on a much more, aggressive time scale than I've been doing um, who are also my age um, I don't really like talking about myself <laughs> can we can we move on to like the stories themselves yes we okay. can um, so you've done a bunch of coverage of ISIS and Syria online but you've also you've written two of the longer features like magazine features one about Syrian doctors mm -hmm. one about the Assad files mm -hmm. um, I want to ask you a little bit about both of those sure. I'm curious once you had the first, did the Assad files, did that come to you or is that something you were tracking for a long time trying to get a hold of? I had thought I might try to profile a, a prosecutor. Um, his name's Stephen Rapp and he used to be the U U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes. And he had spoken very passionately about accountability in Syria, both during his tenure and after he resigned. Um, and so I got in touch with him initially to talk about accountability and to talk about the Caesar photographs, which is this co large collection of um, police images f um, that were taken by a Syrian photographer for the military police to document the corpses of detainees who had been killed in security and intelligence facilities. And on my very first phone call with him, he mentioned that there was a group of investigators who had smuggled 600,000 Syrian government documents out of the country. And I had never heard of this. So I asked if he could tell me a bit more. And by chance, the head of that group called the Commission for International Justice and Accountability was coming to Washington. And he agreed to meet up for drinks. So I, I went down to Baltimore because um, Bill Wiley, the head of the group, uh, despises everything within the Beltway. <laughs> so he wanted to stay in Baltimore, <laughs> even though his meetings were in Washington. And we sat down for three hours and... Um, they had already been written about in The Guardian, um, but they hadn't allowed anybody to look at the actual evidence. And there were some, it, it was complicated to arrange that. Um, for one, I couldn't mention what country they were based in, in the piece, for security reasons. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I told my editor, Willing, about this, and he was very encouraging and and. Basically, the next week I took off for Western Europe. Um, it was a really strange and lonely time. Because of the arrangements and precautions to protect 
their organization and its location and yeah i i couldn't I, i i couldn't make any friends i couldn't talk to anyone who wasn't related to the story so for two months i you know hid in an apartment i had one friend who lived in the city who was also a criminal investigator and prosecutor so i could talk to him so i saw him all the time and then apart from that i was just all the time in the uh, offices of the cija it was a very lonely time but it was it was also quite traumatic um because i was going through these documents a uh, huge volume of documents and taking notes on them I, um i can't go into the specifics of of that arrangement but i they gave me access to everything i need did you um, have to have them translated no so because this group intends to supply all the evidence to an international prosecuting body they had everything translated to a legally viable standard oh, wow. so i was so lucky because everything i looked at was in english they had the arabic copies too so that i could see that this was you know this matched up and that um you know we there's an arabic speaking fact checker at the new yorker from egypt who would also be aware that you know here's the arabic if you want to double check us yeah. so um, you're just spending your life in these documents i mean it is similar yeah. it's related to the question about the syrian doctor's story which yeah. was i mean that story sounded like it had videos that were absolutely just horrific horrific and yeah. devastating and and in this case it's you know torture files essentially yeah. Yeah. and so w- what did that do to you yeah Well just on the, on the torture piece uh you know there's hundreds of witness testimonies just detailing the absolute worst thing and the worst kind of the part that's most traumatic about it is not not necessarily the specifics of any individual case no matter how horrific the crimes that happened to them and no matter how many dead inmates uh, and friends and family members they saw it was the fact that all of these testimonies taken together corroborated each other and showed a picture of the hell that it really is because a single testimony is hard to believe 10 testimonies saying the same thing still hard to believe hundreds hundreds from all over the country saying exactly the same methods being used on them regardless of the security branch the exact same methods of transportation between branches the exact same people in charge of these branches um it started to build a picture so that it was immediately possible to tell what was true and what was hard to know mm-hmm. and then after working in these files for several weeks i met mazen alhamada who who was a, a victim of torture who wasn't one of the witnesses for the siege case but whose story was honestly the most horrific i've ever heard and it connected databases in a in incredibly unique way which is to say he happened to be from Derizor which is a city in eastern Syria where the siege happened to have its largest collection of files so it was very easy to match up his testimony from his time in Derizor with the actual security committee meeting minutes from the Derizor security committee that's discussing the mosque that he's organizing protests in in real time or, or contemporaneously and then he also happened to be transferred to branches in Damascus where he was tortured horribly and the siege has incredible testimonies from these branches in Damascus and then he also happened to very briefly be sent to a military hospital hospital 601 in Damascus which is where the bodies were being processed and where most of the caesar files photographs were taken and he saw bodies there and 
he, uh, you know, bodies in the bathroom. Yeah. Um, he saw this absolute nightmare, this absolute nightmare world that then, upon his release, he detailed in full testimony to a group of Syrian activists who published it with a dateline, and that dateline was October 2013, which was before the Caesar files were known to exist. And so I knew that he wasn't lying about what he saw in the, about the bodies in the bathroom at Hospital 601 because he couldn't have been influenced by the Caesar files because no one knew about that. Right, it was more, um, he was corroborated by Everything that about his narrative w- was really unique. I mean, honestly, the most unique thing is that he survived because almost everyone who went to Hospital 601 was killed. And so the fact that we have a witness who made it through Hospital 601, who also happened to connect these other databases, was really lucky. Um, and he was also uh, put in touch with me by Stephen Rapp. Um, Stephen Rapp had, before becoming the ambassador for war crimes, he was a prosecutor for years. He he is very familiar with doing um, intense witness interviews, cross-checking them, and he knows the serious stuff so well. And so it was only after Rap had grilled Mazin for five or six hours one day that he called me up and said, I have the guy that needs to be in your story. And then I went and I spoke with Mazin for three hours. He and I cried. The translator cried. And um, after that, I was in this hotel in the darkness and the wind and the cold and the rain, um, just so haunted and so hurt because everything that Mazen told me lined up with stuff I already knew. And so I knew he was telling the truth. And he has this very fragile frame and this very hollow face from having been starved and having been beaten. And he, he undergoes physical therapy for his wounds. He's 38 years old. And he's so sweet and so honest and so consistent in his facts. And I just, I just, I went to the hotel bar and just like, I called my family and I just cried. And I had nightmares working on that piece for the ensuing couple of months. Um, And then when it came out, it was this enormous relief because I no longer had to hide it all in my head. Um, And I, I found, I like working on these long stories because, and I, it's a it's a real luxury to be afforded the time. You know, a lot of, a lot of the stuff in the war crimes piece, in terms of the broad facts of crimes against humanity, torture and detention centers, these have been reported widely. Mm-hmm. I'm not the first person to do this. A lot of people have been doing it for years. But what I was allowed to do was spend seven months on this and then write it for 10,000-something words. And that meant I felt as though I was able to tell it more or less completely. But one day, about a week before it ran, um, I went to my editor, Willing, and I asked him if he thought we might translate it into Arabic. And the, the New Yorker had never translated a piece before, and he immediately said, yes, let's, let's try to do this. And we proposed it to David, who immediately also said, go for it. And so we, we had a translation come out about a day and a half after the English showed up. Mm-hmm. And it circulated all over the Arab world. And it was something that felt important to, uh, to allow 
Syrians who knew better than anyone what was happening, but maybe hadn't seen the internal security memos mm -hmm. detailing what, why this was happening to them, to be able to read what was happening in Assad's highest level security committee, how they were coordinating the crackdown in distant provinces, and why it was that their relatives had been tortured and killed. And now you have, in three cases, uh, gone sort of deep inside this country and what's happened there without having been there. Yeah. You've never been in Syria still, I, or I have you been I crossed very briefly in 2013 on my very first trip. Um, so I, I had gone, like, barely. You know, yeah. I, was, I was 300 meters into Syria. I was never in the firing line. I was never on the front lines. I have never been to Aleppo, and the doctor's piece takes case primarily in Aleppo. So, as you mentioned, the doctor's piece relied heavily on videos. And that's something that is sort of a, a, a method that, and it's more than an accidental method than a deliberate one that's kind of emerged out of these last three pieces is that rather than going to a place that I cannot safely go in order to witness who knows what for a few hours or, or a few days or a few weeks, what I did was get access to enormous volumes of proprietary information that someone else had gotten that wasn't otherwise going to be public that they didn't mind being public, or in the case of the Belgian stuff, just happened to already be leaked and had been published in the Belgian press. Mm -hmm. And that stuff shows infinitely more than I could ever find on my own. Instead, since I was profiling this Dr. David Knott, he had, because he was working with, to try to train surgeons who work in other conflict zones, he filmed everything. He often had a GoPro camera on his forehead as he mm -hmm. did these surgeries. He came out of Syria over three trips, over three years, with more than 50,000 photos and videos. And so I went through them. And uh, there were other things that were really deeply traumatic in that material, stuff that haunted David Knott more than his cumulative 20 years of working in other conflict zones all over the world. Um, cases where people would come in still alive, there was nothing to do to save them. A lot of them were children. And he said, as he started to cry in the interview, all you can do is hope that they die quickly. And one of these particular scenes was um, that he, f he filmed was five siblings who came into the ward after a barrel bomb attack. Um, there was a baby with no feet uh, who let out a stifled cry and then died. Um, nearby, on another table, there was his brother whose guts were spilling out of his abdomen, um, who was silent and unmoving. Um, there was a little boy who was just screaming, who had a little bit of blood on his forehead. He was the one, only one who lived. Um, and not said this harrowing thing that I didn't put in the piece, which is essentially that when you have a child come in and they are screaming, you know they're, they're going to live. And if you have a child come in and they're catatonic, they're the ones who are going to die because they've sort of passed this plateau of bleeding out and they can no longer, you know, I don't want to get the medical stuff wrong, but essentially they cannot express the pain that they're enduring. And so 
this other boy gets dragged in in two loosely connected pieces, um, carried by two medical workers, put on a table, flipped over. You can't tell what's front and what's back. Um, his entire pelvis is missing. There's just a... <sighs> This a piece of flesh connecting them, and then a uh, boy flips over, and he's covered in dust, and he's, his face is gray, and his eyes are looking around, and he's still alive. And there's these little white blobs on his head, and Knot starts scraping them off of his head and, and sort of petting him and trying to make him comfortable. There's no morphine in the hospital, so there's no way to make them comfortable other than hope they die fast. And... Not didn't know what these little white blobs were until the sister was brought in and a concrete block had fallen on her head and these little blobs were the sister's brain. And that scene was something that I had to watch several times in order to write it accurately and carefully. That one of the fact checkers had to watch as well. Um, that not replays in his mind over and over and over. And it was the scene that that was haunting him most when he went to Buckingham Palace three weeks later for lunch with the Queen that he'd been That's invited to. That's an insane to. moment in that piece. And she asked him whether, you know, what, what because she, she does this lunch, I don't know the time scale, but a few times a year or maybe once a year with citizens and each of them has some special <laughs> you know quality and on Knott's right was the queen and on Knott's left was uh, one of Britain's most prolific growers of rhubarb and <laughs> when the queen turned to him and asked like who are you like what what have you been doing he says well, I'm a surgeon and I just got back from Aleppo and she goes how was it and this scene of the children dying in front of him with him being unable to do anything was what just filled his mind. And he, he froze and he couldn't speak to her. And he, he started, he was about to cry. And she called over the two corgis and invited him to pet the corgis. And so for the next 20 minutes, he and the queen are petting her dog silently. And she closes the lunch with turning to him and just saying, that's much better than talking, isn't it? It was. It really was. Um, so how, how do you uh, keep from getting hardened? You seem like an extremely sensitive person. Um, how do you keep from getting cynical or getting, uh, I don't know, overexposed uh, too quickly to all of this? I don't think it's my place to be cynical because I've observed some of the horrors of the Syrian war through these various materials. Um, but I, it's Syrians that are living them. It's Syrians that are being largely ignored by the international community and by a lot of political attention on ISIS. And I think that it wouldn't be my place to be cynical when some of them still aren't. Um, and I recognize that my role is to report what happened as carefully, accurately, and stoically as possible 
without diminishing the horror and without exaggerating it, either of which would do a disservice. Um, and I'm, cert I'm very affected by each of these stories. It would be, I would be afraid of myself if I didn't feel something when I look at picture, videos of dying children. And um, I, I, I went, after that piece came out, I needed a break. Uh, I went to California for six days and basically just hung out and didn't, uh, the, the sort of motto for the trip, which I had in mind and I stuck to, was no Twitter, no Trump, no Syria. <laughs> I like that your break was six days. I thought you were going to say six weeks. It was a nice break. It was a really nice break. Um, I was in the woods and I went to the beach and hung out with my friend. So, so I've kept you here a really long time. I could talk to you for, I could talk to you all day, I think. Um, but I'm going to ask you a couple more things sure. real quick. One is just there's a certain pull in in all of these things to sort of become an expert. Like I noticed in, you know, something happens in Paris, something happens in Nice, something happens in Belgium. Obviously, uh, an editor is going to call you up and say, what have you got to say about this? You've you've been there. You've got some expertise. Um, but do you feel the pull of the sort of ISIS expert, like people coming at you with that? I'm very uh, skeptical of that. Yeah. I and I, I basically uh, in the aftermath of a terrorism attack in Europe, there's a pretty good chance I'll get an email. <laughs> um, it, that's but but I I I don't write about all of them, and I and I always feel very reluctant to approach any of them. Honestly, I have this fear and concern that. ISIS has really perfected its media approach and that we contribute to its expansion uh, and to the proliferation of future attacks. Rukmini talks about this. Yeah, and it, it, I think it's especially pronounced now as Europe is more and more on edge. So basically what ISIS has done is it has created this framework for anybody to claim affiliation right before doing an attack. And, and the instructions are to make it public. So a Facebook post, or as Omar Mateen did in Orlando, make a phone call to the police announcing your intentions. That phone call is public record. Of course, it's going to get reported. Because it's getting reported, even though, or even if, he and anyone else who does an attack has never been in touch with a single person in ISIS, by it being reported in the international press that he made this phone call, ISIS finds out about it. Then ISIS claims him therefore affording him this ideological certainty that, by all accounts, it seems he didn't really have. It also guarantees more press for his atrocity. It guarantees that any loser can be spoken about by presidents and world leaders by not carrying out a massacre, but by carrying out a massacre in the name of a terror group. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I have this real concern about how we approach this and how we allow the group to proliferate its links um, and allow domestic abusers and psychopaths to rend apart Western civilization and force intolerance upon actual Muslims um, in the countries they reside. Uh, and I, I think that it is really deeply important for reporters across the board 
and politicians, however unreceptive many of them may be to this, to just be so careful about framing, about even using the word terrorism, about using the word ISIS, and in the case that you do, explaining all the ways in which something is or isn't incoherent. Mm -hmm. So what, now that you're, you've got this journalism under your belt and you also, you know, there's an outlet in the New Yorker that undoubtedly wants more of these stories from you, like what's driving you at this point? Like, what, are you driven by your curiosity in areas that are maybe outside of writing about Syria or uh, what's going to take you into your next stories and where you want to go next? Um, sometimes I'm driven by moral outrage, as I think was the case for some of the war crimes stuff. Other times, well, I, I, I don't have that much data to base this on because I've only really done three pieces. <laughs> but um, but I, I... Three's a trend. <laughs> um, I think that um, I, I am looking outside of Syria for the next project. I... I'm attracted to things that might take a while. Um, I I think one of my favorite things about journalism is that, um, and, and particularly long form, is that it allows you to learn about some of the most interesting things in the world, or the things that interest you most in the world, from the people that know them best. You know, I want to learn about battlefield medicine. I get the opportunity and an open door to speak to one of the world's best war surgeons. Uh, I want to learn about war crimes because of journalism, not because of anything else, I'm allowed to walk into this office that I shouldn't be allowed to walk into. That's what I love most, is just being able to learn about things that excite me or interest me or outrage me from the people who know more than anyone, and then trying as carefully and desperately as possible not to get it wrong and not to oversimplify whatever world that they live in because they have been generous enough to allow me into it for however many weeks or months. And also the fact that projects do take weeks or months and potentially in some cases years, but those have a con concrete beginning and an end. And I'm a pretty restless person and I can focus on something for quite intently and obsessively for a period of time but then when it's done I can release it from my head and I for almost forget everything like I don't remember most of the details of the Belgium story or as soon as the war crime stuff was out you know I did a couple of interviews after that and then I basically forgot everything um, same with doctors I just let it go from my mind and and I like working on projects that or just having a potential career and a potential life of having this luxury of shifting between things um, every few months as you get bored or frustrated or confused or lost or curious about something else. Ben, thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Oh, me too. Thank you so much for having me on. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. I want to thank Ben Taub for coming in for that conversation. And I also want to note that some of his reporting for the Assad Files, which was the New Yorker story about the Syrian torture files, was sponsored by the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting. They're a great organization. They've actually funded some stories for the Atavist magazine as well. And uh, he wanted me to make a special note to appreciate their uh, assistance on that front. I want to thank my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I want to thank our editor this week, Janelle Piper, and our intern, Courtney Harrell. 
We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.